My name is Sarah Fordyce, and I'm the Victorian State Manager of National Disability Services, the peak body for disability service providers in Australia. Today, I'm speaking with Terry Simons, Chief Executive at Yorella. After the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, with its peaks and lockdowns, we are now moving into a different environment with fewer community restrictions and widespread vaccinations. Many disability service providers are considering their focus, processes and activities in the context of this new environment, an environment in which COVID is endemic, meaning the virus will continue to be present in our community over the foreseeable future with fluctuating intensity and necessitating ongoing prevention and management. Urella is considering the challenges that this reality brings. And today we are going to hear from Terry about how Urella is approaching this. So welcome, Terry, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Uh, firstly, could you briefly tell us about Urella? Sure, and uh, great to be with you today, Sarah. Uh, Urella is uh, maybe the oldest, um, certainly a very well-known disability provider in Victoria, over 102 years of operating. It's Large, uh, not the largest by any means, but a large provider, and we offer a wide range of services. So we offer services into uh, group homes, um, community settings and community activities, employment services. We've got a range of allied and other health services as well. So um, and we also offer a couple of specialist health services or services for people with complex health conditions as well. And I might touch on some of those later um in, in our discussion but yeah that's that's, that's Urella and I've been with Urella for a bit over a year now so relative uh, newbie. Thank you. What are some of the challenges and opportunities facing disability services as COVID-19 becomes an endemic virus in our community? Yeah well I guess it's important to start with the people that we serve. Um, we do know that COVID-19 is um, a significant risk in general for people with a disability. Uh, research is still emerging on this, but there are plenty of papers now from overseas, mostly dating to earlier variants of COVID, but they certainly all point to increased inherent risk for people with a disability. Um, there was a study from Canada, for example, which found that people with intellectual disabilities were something like 1.3 times more likely to uh, be tested positive or to catch the virus twice as likely roughly to die, people with Down syndrome, um, even at higher risk, something like five or six times more likely to die. Uh, and other countries have, um, have conducted studies. Uh, there have been studies conducted in other countries that have found you know, the, same, the same kind of results. Australia, to my knowledge, lacks some of the same large-scale research, but some of the data from the NDIS, for example, tracking outcomes for participants does suggest an additional risk. In general, Australia has done pretty well, I would say, overall in terms of mortality for people with disabilities. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But I guess that first point is just, just as we learn to live with COVID, is to remember that the people we work with um, are at additional risk, at higher risk uh, than people without disabilities. One of the big drivers for that is um, the health conditions that people with disabilities also live with. Um, asthma, respiratory disease, obesity, cardiac disease, 
um, all have higher prevalence in people with disabilities that are significant, um, you know, add on significantly to the risk they have as a result of their disability itself. Um, I'm conscious of a study published last week, which Shirella was lucky to be part of, um, the largest study of young people with intellectual disability in Australia, which found they live with higher risk of heart disease related to physical activity, diet, stress, etc. Um, these things are absolutely going to increase the risk and the outcomes um, of COVID for our community. And it's a good reminder that better health overall is going to be a preventive intervention around COVID. Um, I might just comment also on, on um, the willingness of, of people with disabilities in our community to, um, to take up opportunities to prevent COVID and, and mitigate risk. So um, the vaccination uptake has been excellent. We have always found um, our clients and families very willing to, um, to, to line up and get the vaccine to the extent it's available. They've been delayed by some poor access and some delays in rollouts, which we've all kind of spoken about at different times. Um, but when it's available, very keen to take it up. Um, they're very engaged with information. Um, so there is some research on this. People with disabilities are tend to be more engaged with information about COVID than people without disabilities, probably reflecting the fact that they know they're at higher risk and therefore more interested. Um, and I guess that means there's likely to be a really great audience provided that providers and governments put the effort in to, to make sure that um, health information is available in different formats um, to reflect people's different, um, different needs and different means of kind of reading and accessing information. So that I think is an opportunity actually. Um, the fact that we have a community that's really engaged and very active in, in, in promoting health and helping to manage the, the, the situation that we're all dealing with. Um, Thank you. And are there further considerations disability organisations need to be aware of when reviewing their strategies, current activities and processes? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first, the first thing I'd say, maybe the most important thing, is that there's no set and forget. Uh, I mean, none of us, I guess the advice from public health teams has changed so often that I guess no one's exactly setting and forgetting because we all have to be watching out for the latest guidance. But maybe I'd put it a different way and say, that we can't just sort of follow the fact sheets and, 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 and just do what we're told in terms of that public health advice. Disability providers, I think, need to be very actively listening to our communities to understand what that advice means for them and be prepared to tailor and adapt um, constantly in response to that. If I think about our experience, uh, when I joined Urella, one of my early meetings was with a group of, a group of um, families who were very uh, angry, to be honest, uh, about the extent of restrictions and the impact that it had upon their loved ones in terms of access to services and um, the community. And they described, um, you know, a frankly kind of traumatic experience for their loved ones of being shut out of services and shut out of community activities and isolating at home. And they felt that disability providers were not listening or not aware of that and not doing enough to find ways to be creative and offer access, um, uh, and, and instead we're just kind of following the following the following the guidance to you know close services to prevent transmission, and it's not as simple as that. So listening to communities uh, and the and the impact that that public health advice has on them is very important. At the other end of the spectrum, we have a service, um, possibly one of the highest risk 
disability services in the country, which is a, a service for people on continuous mechanical ventilation. Uh, and there's a st that service is, is, is effectively sort of run or governed with a steering group of the residents. Um, and they have been adamant with us time and again that they want Urala to go above and beyond the state guidance in terms of COVID prevention because they're very aware of the risk they're at. And so even when state guidance has been to relax slightly on things like personal protective equipment or testing, the steering committee um, would never let us do that. And they insist that Urala um, maintain the highest possible kind of levels and intensity of protections for their protection. Um, and so again, there's two different ends of the spectrum here um, and, and communities kind of perceiving their risk and needs differently. And we've had to be pretty pretty um, active and, and sensitive to listening to them. So I guess that's the main message, I think, about disability providers. That we can't just be kind of watching out for the latest email from the department about, about what to do, but have to really listen to our communities about what that advice means for them. Yes, it's so important, that listening, isn't it? Listening to a community. And now can you tell us about the strategies Urella is exploring to respond to COVID becoming endemic? Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's so many things, but I might, I might touch on a few. Um, the, the, the first is about support for our staff. So I was, um, I was in a couple of our services today and um, at one of those services, staff described two separate outbreaks they've dealt with over the last six months one with Delta and one with Omicron. And the staff had uh, successfully contained the outbreaks to uh, one and then two residents um, and prevented transmission among other residents in the home, prevented transmission among the staff group. So a real success story from my point of view. But they described, they described, <laughs> they said they found it difficult now to talk about it because they, they felt like they had PTSD after the experience. It was so difficult for them isolating um, within the home, within our, um, you know, home, within their own homes, um, privately with their families in order to protect uh, their families and also protect the workplace uh, and, the, and, and the residents. Uh, and so that period they described as being incredibly difficult for them and, um, you know, emotionally difficult, physically difficult and, and draining, uh, just exhausting was their experience and having to go through that a couple of times. So I, I guess... Um, you know, we. Your question was about what we're doing. I guess, we, I guess we're continually thinking about how to properly support our staff. Um, we have had for some time financial incentives in place for staff who are working in COVID-positive environments. We considered recently whether, you know, with with Omicron and you know every second person you meet having had it, um, is this now so normal that that, that that's not required and. The feedback from staff is is no, it is still very much appreciated because the, because the impact on their work is, is still incredibly significant, no matter how common it is in the community, um, and and how much they appreciate the thought um, that goes into, for example, um, vouchers and hampers and gift boxes and things for people who are kind of dealing with isolation themselves, um, and any incentives or support we can provide for people who are working there. Just just in some reflection of the additional effort and burden um, required for them to do that and to keep people safe. So that's, that's I guess, the first thing is um, we've put a bit of work into thinking about how to support staff and we'll have to continue thinking about that as it goes on. The, the second one is about um, central, 
what I might say call, call central versus devolved management of outbreaks in the organisation. Now, I appreciate this is going to be different for organisations of different scale, uh, but Urala has services across the state, a whole range of settings uh, in metropolitan and rural Victoria, and we have for most of the last couple of years had a fairly centralised approach to managing outbreaks with a small team in the centre hearing about pretty much every case among clients and staff and then giving advice on um, what what um, you know the um, affected individuals and teams should do in terms of their response. And that was kind of okay, I suppose, um, for the first few waves and then was completely broken uh, with Omicron because of the scale of the outbreaks and and people um, getting hundreds and hundreds of notifications every day and, and unable around the clock to keep up with the need for advice. So it was a reminder for us that um, the best, or, or kind of a lesson for us, I guess, that we needed to move to a more devolved approach where we really um, provide advice and support to local management teams and then trust them to apply the advice. It did, it did require us to translate the advice into, into very simple terms. Um, the I have to say the departments, uh, the wonderful committed people in the department write advice that is incredibly difficult to understand at the coalface in terms of what you should actually do. And uh, it took a bit of work uh, on our part to try and translate that into material that managers and teams could pick up and, and actually use. But um, but, that, but that's our that's our focus now is trying to support local managers to 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 deal with cases as they come up without needing to wait for advice from the centre. And the centre um, is then, and, and by the centre I mean, you know, um, clinicians, for example, um, who we're lucky to have in our teams, who can have a relationship with public health and can sort of mediate if necessary or translate if necessary. They only need to get involved if it's a really kind of unusual case or something or something a bit a bit sort of different or a bit confusing and, and they can get involved, um, but not every case. So that's, I guess, the second point. The third one is is about just going back to the basic protections we already know to be effective and, and this is incredibly important but but um, you know masks um, donning and doffing of personal protective equipment basic infection control cleaning of surfaces hand hygiene etc and, and and physical distancing to the extent possible inside our services it, it's not a one shot we have found that we go to we go to a site we'll provide advice teams will work through this in terms of what they do we'll come back two months later and you know, inadvertently, or you know, possibly through a turnover of staff or something, things have changed and gone back. And also, it's 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 wearing, you know, kind of keeping up these these procedures and routines. And so, it's just kind of human that people find ways to just ease their own <laughs> burden by cutting a few corners here and there. And so, we have to continually remind people and provide supports around that stuff. So that's, I guess, a third point. And the fourth one's about just kind of, we're in the process now of sort of rethinking some of our centre-based programs because centre-based programs that involve larger groups coming together are kind of at inherently higher risk of transmission from any infectious disease. And so we're thinking about how to provide more individualised services, often outside of centres and out in the community. And, and you know, unsurprisingly, this has the um, added benefit of possibly more inclusive, progressive programs for people because instead of coming to a centre where they're hanging out with other people with a disability, they're now much more likely to be out in the community and, and running around the traps kind of doing all sorts of fun things. So um, so it is both more COVID safe and also probably better in terms of, of, of outcomes and inclusion overall. So that's another thing I guess we're in the process of doing and really enjoying watching watching how that kind of evolves. Thank you.
And finally, do you have any further advice for disability service providers or governments trying to work out next steps in the current environment? Yeah, one I've already touched on, Sarah, which is about communication. I think that um, I think that public health advice has to be seen as um, change management. You know, this is a this is an exercise in in helping people change behaviours, and um, and therefore um, the use of sort of long, complicated technical documents. Uh, while that might be helpful as a reference point, a lot more effort's got to go into how those messages are communicated. And if we're talking about people living with a disability, their carers and families, and the workforce in the disability sector, you know, who speak many different languages, come from a range of cultural backgrounds, have a wide range of, of professional qualifications, but many of them no professional qualifications at all, we have to think very hard about how that how those messages are translated. So my message to government would be to make the extra investment in getting people with lived experience uh, and people from the workforce in the room to add that extra step of how to translate this new thought or direction or evidence. How do we translate this into something that will actually be taken up and understood uh, in, the, in the community more generally? So more investment in change management and communication, I guess, particularly with lived experience would be my first point. The second one's about the built environment. So the I visited a home this morning uh, where, for an entirely sensible reason, which was that the tree was, um, you know, invading the gutters of the roof. Um, a tree had been removed, making the outdoor area um, now kind of without shade, unusable for the resident that I was with, um, who was not able to be out in the sun for any period of time, and so now had to spend much more time indoors, and and so it's. And so there's kind of thinking about the environment that, that people are living in and how to create more accessible um, amenities, particularly outdoors, better ventilated, um, thinking about temperature, thinking about um, access to fresh air, et cetera. But, but it wouldn't take, it wouldn't take uh, you know, the rebuilding of all of these properties to make things a little better and safer from the point of view of infectious disease. So. I mean, I know the Victorian government, for example, has in the past had uh, grant annual grant programs for shade sales for schools and childcare centres. We should have a shade sale program for disability and other residential services that provides uh, safe outdoor, you know, safer outdoor areas that are comfortable for people um, that, that allow them to get out of their out of their kind of indoor environments. Um, the mobile uh, HEPA filters that we use to improve the air quality. In some of our settings, for our highest risk setting, we are, um, you know, we're having to, to. We initially loaned some and have to now pay for those to get rented. But the Victorian government's providing those uh, in the tens of thousands for schools to prevent COVID transmission in school environments. And I won't talk about exactly which government perhaps is best to the best place to to sort of contribute towards this. But these are um, a mobile fleet of filters that could be deployed into outbreaks or high-risk settings might be something else to think about instead of just, uh, you know, waiting until all of our properties can be rebuilt. Um, the third and final point I'll make is, is and this relates to COVID becoming endemic, is it, just to sort of remind ourselves now after two years that COVID is not the only show in town when it comes to health, that as we learn to live with COVID, we have to put COVID in the context of heart disease, 
um, other respiratory conditions, other infectious diseases, cancer, a whole range of other health conditions, and think about the health of people with disability overall, their access to health services, access to health information, what's happening to their access to GPs, what's happening to, to access to hospital care, um, there's a whole range of those things. And I think, I think as soon as we appreciate that COVID's not a kind of, um, you know, a, a temporary thing that we have to all focus on and then get back to our day jobs, but actually it's here forever, but so is cancer and so is heart disease. So let's think about them all together. That's probably my final point I'd make. Thank you, Terry. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us today and share some of your reflections and insights. Thanks so much, Sarah. And for more information and resources, please visit the NDS COVID-19 hub on our website. Thank you.